This is The Future Of, where experts share their vision of the future and how their work is helping shape it for the better. I'm Jessica Morrison. And I'm David Blaney. Many of us are nervous about being judged by others, but for those with social anxiety disorder, the fear of being in a social situation can lead to excessive sweating, trembling and heart palpitations. To discuss this topic further, with us today is Peter McAvoy, a professor of clinical psychology at Curtin University. Thanks for joining us, Peter. My pleasure. What is social anxiety disorder? We all probably admit to experiencing some social anxiety, some discomfort in social situations at some times in some contexts. So sitting job interviews, for example. Recording um, podcasts. Exactly, recording (laughs) podcasts. Uh, Being at parties sometimes when we don't really know many people, there may be some mild social awkwardness, but that tends to be transitory, passes quickly. When we're talking about social anxiety disorder, we're talking about a level of social anxiety and panic, the symptoms of which you were just discussing, really start to become debilitating in some important way in the person's life. So they report to us that it really affects their ability to, to even apply for a promotion, for example. They find it very difficult to interact with people at work or socially, and they really can feel very socially isolated in their lives. So really the anxiety is dictating what they're able to do or not do in their life. So that's when we start to think about a social anxiety disorder. How many people have this disorder? Well, uh, as I say, it exists on a continuum, so we Mm. all experience it to one degree or another. But when people start to say, this is actually severely affecting my life, and we're talking about social anxiety disorder... The best evidence we have suggests that about 8% of us in our lifetime will meet all the diagnostic criteria. So that's about 1.3 million adult Australians in their lifetime can expect to meet criteria. But really most people will meet criteria quite early in life. So half the people who do meet criteria will have already met it by the age of about 13 and half will meet it after that. But very few people will develop it after about their mid-20s. So usually it's present quite early. What would you say to someone if they said socially anxious people are just being shy? Well, certainly that's an element of it, shyness, but that's the milder end of the continuum. The sort of cases I was talking about before, when people tend to find themselves being a bit reticent to speak in social situations, but they're still able to go to those social situations. They're still able to sit the job interviews. They're still able to establish and maintain conversations and relationships. But when we're talking about social anxiety disorder, it actually debilitates them in all of those ways. So they're actually not able to certainly meet their potential in all those life important life domains. Uh, it also makes them miserable. And also physical symptoms as well, as we covered at the start. Yeah, exactly. So Dave, if I was to dangle you off the narrowest bridge by your feet, you know, your heart would be racing, you'd be sweating, uh, you'd have yeah, this I guess urge. Yeah, it would be. Yeah, <laughs> you'd have the urge to get the hell out of there. And they're all the same symptoms that people with social anxiety disorder have in what most people would consider fairly mundane social interactions. So people with phobias of heights or snakes, imagine how you feel in the face of that object or that thing that you're terrified of. Well, that happens for people with social anxiety disorder in social situations. In the past couple of decades, it's now become much easier for us to communicate with one another instead of sending letters and using carrier pigeons and using ham radios and semaphores. We're now using mobile phones and computers over the internet, social networking sites and the like. How is this feeding into this 
I think it can be a bit of a double-edged sword in terms of social anxiety. On the one hand, it's great at facilitating avoidance of real-world contact, and avoidance is one of the most critical maintaining factors for significant social anxiety. So if I fear negative evaluation and I never actually confront that situation, I never actually have the opportunity to learn, A, that it's far less likely that people are going to judge me than I think it is, B, even on the occasion that that does occur, it's not a catastrophe. It doesn't really need to make a huge difference to my life. And C, I can cope with that level of anxiety. So I'm, I never have the opportunity to learn those things. So my social anxiety, my social fears are going to maintain indefinitely. The issue with online communication is that it gives people a sense of safety. And we can think about it as a bit of a safety behavior or a subtle avoidance behavior, which can maintain then fears of actual face-to-face social contact. Now, the other side of the coin is that people with severe social anxiety aren't going to be interacting with people that often anyway. So at least it provides them with some social contact, some opportunity to experiment with sharing some of their ideas with other people and not getting negative feedback as a consequence. And also the online space gives people to to learn that they're not alone. There are other people who are suffering from similar problems and also to access online treatments, which are now are, are available and can be a really important first step to helping people ma- better manage their anxiety. We're um, social beings, or so we're told by other people, ironically. Do we get the same benefits with social interaction online and digitally that we do face-to-face? It really is going to be individualised in that respect. Certainly we see clients who are terrified of interacting with social media A, it's a very open forum in a lot of ways. So not only does the person you're posting to see it, but all your friends might see it as well. So there might be actually a lot more opportunity for judgment than just a one-on-one conversation. So that can actually lead to an increase in anxiety. But on the other hand, it can help to facilitate some degree of contact and some normalization and validation of our ideas as well. So if we take a risk and post something and we don't get disapproval, then that may help us develop some confidence over time to do more of that, make more contributions, and then make the leap to -to face-to-face interactions. Thinking of social media, um, I'm going to take it a little bit further, dating apps. I have a whole friend group now who don't meet people how I may have met my partner. Is that another facet to this that you're seeing? I don't necessarily see that as a problem. It's just another form of meeting Mm. people. As long as it makes it to that next step where you're meeting people face to face and they're able to have a real world connection, then that might be fine. Obviously, the digital connectedness is helping, but also causing some social anxiety issues. What are some new treatments that are being developed in this space? The main target for treatment is really targeting that avoidance behaviour in whatever form it comes in. And just about everyone we see has their own creative ways of avoiding their social fears from coming true, or they think they're avoiding their social fears from coming true. Whether they would come true, whether they're as likely as they think they are, it's a very different kettle of fish. And so treatment really is about helping our clients to engage with social context and directly test their fears. For some people who have a fear of digital social media, then it would be about confronting that situation, taking a risk and evaluating the results and the outcome, just a bit like a scientist, really. What's my prediction? Mm. Uh, What do I need to do to test that prediction? What evidence would I need to observe that would support or not support that prediction and then go out and do it? We can do what they're called behavioural experiments that we use. They're a core technique in in evidence-based treatments for social anxiety. 
sometimes it's about the probability of my fears coming true. So we might walk down the street and just see what proportion of people are looking at us or staring at us or completely ignoring us because people with social anxiety disorder often believe they're the center of attention. Or we might assess, well, what's the cost of drawing attention to ourselves? How much does it need to matter? In which case we have to draw attention to ourselves. So we'll go out in the street and we'll do stupid things like run around like planes or do cartwheels or just collapse on the floor inexplicably or take a banana for a walk down the street on an end of a piece of string and just see how hard it is to draw attention to ourselves. And you might be surprised, but virtually no one pays attention to you, even when you do all those things. You know, we often uh, do social anxiety treatment in groups and, and people come back and they're just almost disappointed at how hard it is to draw attention wow. on other people. It's like, my gosh, I'm not really the center of everyone's attention. Actually, if I wanted people's attention, it would be extremely hard to get. People are caught up in their own lives and they're just walking to work or doing their own thing. They'll just walk around you, whatever you're doing, and just continue on. Uh, so we can test the cost, how much it needs to matter if attention is drawn to us. And it certainly feels extremely threatening to draw that attention to oneself if you're meeting criteria for social anxiety disorder, or even if you're not. But when people learn that their social fears very rarely come true, and even if they do from time to time, we all do silly things or make faux pas and are laughed at. You know, that happens for all of us. But we need to assess, well, how much does that really need to matter? Do the people who are laughing at us kind of get past that? Can we get past that? Can we tolerate mm -hmm. the anxiety? And how much does it need to matter in a year's time or five years' time what's just happened? So there are all the things that we need to learn. And we can learn that in what we call in vivo, like in the actual situations themselves when we're testing that. Certainly there are a lot of online treatments now that help to guide people through that sort of process. But one of the downsides to online treatment is that we're relying a lot more on people doing those things without the face-to-face -face support. Mm. And often... At the beginning of treatment, this feels very threatening. The client really needs to be sold that this is going to be really helpful for them. Or why would they put themselves through that much anxiety at the outset? And I think a face-to-face -face clinician can really help with that. Well, that actually brings me just on to what I was about to ask. Traditionally, cognitive behavioural therapy, like you're describing, is typically done in a clinical environment, in, a, in an office somewhere. In the future, we're going to have uh, like websites or mobile apps where this is all done. And does this produce the same results? Great question. Mm. Um, the first thing I'd like to say is actually the best therapy is done outside of the office. So um, yes, we will talk to the client, set up something that we think is important for them to do, but then we get out of the office and we actually do it. So those behavioral experiments, I'll go out with clients and I'll do them as well. I'll do those silly things and they can observe how people react to me. Then they'll do them. and well, don't react. I yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> And then they'll do them and we'll just spend a lot of time doing these behavioural experiments because there's nothing like actually experiencing a lack of response from others even when you do silly things. You can talk about it, but it doesn't feel real until you actually observe it. And do you find that the clients find it easier to do these things with you? Initially, mm. absolutely. Um, and our aim is to, as a therapist, to step back and let them take more control over that. And also between sessions, we set a whole range of homework tasks so that they can keep testing it without the therapist because the therapist could become a bit of a safety, safety behavior yeah. as well, um, a safety signal and, oh, it's okay because you were there, but if, in which case I say, but what? That's a really important but. Let's hear about that. And then let's test it in that situation. Uh, and clients learn, oh, it doesn't actually matter what context I do it in or who's around. Same outcome. Really, no one cares that much about evaluating me at all. 
there's a lot of evidence now that the online interventions can be as effective as face-to-face treatment for some people, not for everyone, but people who are able to stick with it are really very self-motivated or people who can't access face-to-face treatment. So people in rural and remote areas or people who work full-time don't have easy access to -to face-to-face clinicians and sometimes online is the best option for them. Uh, and treatments can be very effective. But dropout tends to be a lot higher because you don't have that accountability, if you like, and that that person to check in and kind of um, support you. But you can get a lot of that with discussion groups and therapist guidance, either via the internet or via the telephone. Uh, So services like MindSpot, which is a national online assessment and treatment service, can provide that and has had really good outcomes. Uh, Virtual reality is another future direction uh, for this area. There's been some early research creating a lot of these contexts and situations we've been talking about, various social situations, and uh, through virtual reality, receiving the intervention. So that that would be very easy to disseminate quite widely as that technology becomes more um, widely used. So tell us about that. Very early days, is it? It is quite early days with the virtual reality work. So what they would do is, you know, I was talking before about going out in the street and doing silly things, but in virtual reality, you can create any context. So a context where you're giving a presentation to just a small group or a large group and people are giving you negative feedback as well as positive feedback. So it's, you could tailor the situation to what the client's fear is. Exactly. Is that, is like that a it? virtual room mm. 101. Exactly right. So we can create any context and the clients can then practice the skills uh, with all that feedback and then redirecting their attention back to the task at hand because often people with social anxiety are very self-focused. They're feeling so uncomfortable, so anxious that they're just so aware of their sweatiness and heart racing. And then they worry that people are noticing their anxiety and that feeds the threat of the situation. We can create all those situations and also teach them how to focus back on the task at hand, regardless of the context, regardless of the feedback they're getting back and help them to manage their anxiety that way as well. We've spoken about treatment. How can communities work together to help reduce the prevalence of social anxiety? Look, that's that's a great question. If we think about some of the risk factors for social anxiety, but also um, psychological problems more broadly, Mm. then, you know, certainly there's a genetic load. You know, we all are vulnerable to varying degrees based on our our genes. You know, Uh, if we have a a close family member who suffers from social anxiety or an anxiety disorder, then we're more likely to have an anxiety disorder, but not necessarily. And that's a really important thing. A lot of parents feel a bit guilty if they notice their anxiety in their kids, but uh, most anxious parents won't go on to have anxious kids. So it's not um, not a foregone conclusion by any means. That is an important factor. We're all born with our own temperaments as well. So we all know any of us have had more than one child, no same gene pool, same context, but very different personalities. So we all have different personalities that are varying uh, in terms of our, our vulnerability to anxiety. So those factors really aren't necessarily that changeable mm. um, per se, but certainly contextual factors uh, or environmental factors you know, abuse of various kinds are going to have an impact. So how much do we focus as parents, uh, blaming the parents on one, do we focus on the need for our kids to have external validation or approval from others? Not to say it isn't important and that we do need to get on with people, but the degree to which we believe our children must have approval of others is going to be important. The degree to which we criticise them that can turn into a bit of a monologue in their own mind uh, that can then feed their expectations moving forward. Now, I'm not saying this to make parents feel guilty because we've all criticised our kids, you know, we all criticise ourselves, but it's a matter of balance in that. And are we doing that to really help them or is it from our own anxiety that we're, we're doing too much of that? 
uh, encouraging our kids also to be pro-social and to interact with others. So if we're not giving our kids the opportunities to develop those skills, then they might be more likely to develop social anxiety. If there's someone listening who wants to address their social anxiety, may not tick all the boxes for social anxiety disorder, but they may notice a few of these symptoms, what's the first step they should take? If they did want to um, investigate treatment options, then certainly GP is a great first start. Just have a chat about your experience, your symptoms, and and see what they offer. They might refer offer to refer you to a psychologist that can help you work through this process. The treatment is going to involve identifying the thoughts and beliefs you have and the predictions you're making about social situations and teach you skills for helping to challenge some of those, reducing the avoidance so that you can directly challenge those fears. Uh, strategies for challenging this self-image that we have about how we think we're coming across to others. It's going to be training our attention to focus back on the task at hand rather than being caught up with evaluation and also some of the core beliefs about why are we assuming that we're likely to be criticised or that others are going to be so hostile and critical. They're the sort of things that you might might explore. The online options are a great option. So as I mentioned, MindSpot before, but there are others as well that can provide some information and support. There's a lot of online materials. Um, the Centre for Clinical Interventions is, is a local uh, service that has a lot of on, online materials for a whole range of mental uh, health issues and social anxiety in particular. So there's lots of information that can help people learn about it learn about the things that seem to maintain it and also ways to uh, manage it better. Okay, and that brings us to the end of our discussion. Thank you very much, Professor Peter McAvoy, for sharing your expert knowledge. And if you are concerned about anxiety, you may want to contact the Beyond Blue info line on 1300 224636 or by doing an online search for Beyond Blue. You've been listening to The Future Of, a podcast powered by Curtin University. If you have any questions about today's topic, get in touch by following the links in our show notes. Bye for now.